But in the meantime, it looks like we're finishing up James this morning. We've been doing the book of James for the last, uh, well, several months. We took some time off for uh, Christmas and this and that and the other thing. But um, eight Sundays total. This is the eighth uh, in the series. And so we're going to finish up this morning. And um, James is, it's been amazing for me just to go back through this. It's been about five years since I've I've uh, taught on James, and so uh, going back through again and just looking at it from the uh, advanced perspective of five more years has been really instructive for me, and just to be able to reiterate what it is that James is doing. Because when you think about it, Jesus taught, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, which the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James are probably early catechisms for the, uh, for the church. It was what they used to bring new people in to their community and to keep the old timers on point because it's so laid out precisely. It's got so many points, so densely packed. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was teaching from a very conceptual and micro point of view. So Jesus didn't concern himself with the group in terms of managing a group or managing a following. Jesus was itinerant. He didn't have to do that. He was moving through the countryside, so he just came in and talked to people. And the freedom to do that is really beautiful, um, especially when you've tried to run a church. It's like, yeah, maybe we should just be moving around from town to town. Um, no rent to pay, none of this to establish and keep going. James is different. James is dealing with an established group of people. And so he's taking this intensely micro-message, you know, just turning heart lights on, turning uh, hearts to back to the Father in a very personal way, in a very conceptual way, trying to break old habits of thinking, trying to break old habits of behavior and move into new directions. James is dealing with a group of people that are now set and, and more institutionalized. James led the Jerusalem church for 30 years. And so watching Jesus' message kind of morph from this purely conceptual and micro context into a group macro context where there needs to be some rules. There needs to be uh, etiquette. There needs to be ways of dealing with issues that are coming through. And we don't know what the issues necessarily were. We can surmise some of them. But the book of James is responding to problems that were happening in the community. And he's dealing with certain issues and he lays clues. And we're going to talk about a little bit of that this morning as well. So in this sort of catechetical approach, this way of going through these points that Jesus lived and made uh, in a way that is really graspable by a group, graspable by young people coming in, point by point, the whole focus is how do we live this way of Jesus? What are the guidelines? What are, you know, I hate to say the word rules because it's not about following rules, but when you're first getting on the track, you need some guardrails on the, on, the, uh, on the road so that you're not going too far. And Sermon on the Mount and James are providing those guidelines, those guardrails for us. Last week, we were talking about prayer. We were talking about if you, if you ask not, you have not. And we had to put that into context. Because if you just take that at face value and you don't connect it with what Jesus said, remember we made the connection between the two, Jesus said, if you ask in my name, so that qualifier there, in my name, in my Shem, was bringing it back into some reality for us. Because if we think all we have to do is tack in Jesus' name on the end of a prayer and it's suddenly going to be answered in the way that we formulated the petition to begin with, 
Or if we think, and if you just read James, you don't even have to say in my name. You just ask and it will be given you. We have to realize that what they're talking about is praying in a way that is consistent with the essence or the character of Jesus. And Jesus being one with the Father, then with the Father. Praying in my Shem. Shem was also was name, but also essence and character. It was the deeper, inner essence of a person. And so to pray in that essence, to pray in that character is exactly what they're talking about. So you have this idea of praying in Shem as opposed to praying with wrong-based motives. And what were the wrong motives? Motives that were based in fear. Motives that were based in separation. Motives that were based in we have to somehow grab on and hold on to our own because we don't know if anything is coming tomorrow. That attitude seeping into our prayer is what James said is going to be a wrong motive That's going to kill the connection, kill the ability to be able to have an answered prayer in the sense of if we're praying like the Father would pray, if we're praying like Jesus would pray, well, of course, we're all flowing in the same direction. And this led to one of the huge points that we just can't miss. If we miss this, we miss everything, it seems like to me. Like breeds like. You're not going to get olives from fig trees. You're not going to get pomegranates from thorns, bushes, and so on and so forth. And so if we are praying in a fear-based motive, how in the world do we think that we're going to get to the perfect love of God? See, it just doesn't work that way. Like breeds like. The quality of the means we use must match the quality of the ends we seek. We've been saying that over and over again, but I don't think we can say it enough. I don't think we can pound that into our heads enough. Because until we really and truly start living and choosing as if perfect love really exists, as if we are starting with everything that we need already. Jesus said the kingdom was within. It's not out there someplace. As long as we're trying to acquire, bring something in, we are working completely at odds with everything that the good news is about, everything that Jesus is about. Last week, James said that God opposes the proud. Not that God goes against them, not that God withholds any grace or love from them, but if we are operating in pride, we're operating in fear. Pride is just another form of fear. Trying to mask the things that we feel insecure about. Trying to dominate things and move things in our, to our advantage in such a way that we don't have to fear And so any operation, any action, any choice, any mental attitude, any prayer that is based in that kind of fear, fear of emptiness within and having to acquire and bring something in is going to shelve off our ability to to even see the presence of God in this moment, to see the possibility of kingdom in this moment. And so it's self-fulfilling. We are literally putting blinders on And all the trauma of the past and all the things that we've learned have put blinders on, blinded us to the truth. What truth? That the good news is that everything we need is already here. We are already loved. The way I phrased it, remember, what if heaven, defined as God's acceptance of us, is not the end of our journey, but the beginning of our journey? We start with abundance. If we're ever going to live the abundant life that Jesus has for us, then we have to act as if we have abundance. I love the image of being sat at a huge banquet table, just decked out with all the food you can imagine and drinks flowing, and we're sitting there praying for God to feed us. And God is just, what more can I do? (laughs) What part of everything don't you understand? You know, it's all here, it's all now. So trying to get that 
that turn. That's why Jesus speaks the way he does. That's why all of his phrases are so paradoxical and so mind-blowing. And James is doing much the same thing here. He's trying to get us to understand. You can't go that way. Now, he gives us a recipe for coming to God, doesn't he? He gives us this this um, way of experiencing God's Shem, God's essence, God's character. And if we read at uh, James 4, 7, I know we read this last week, but just get this running start here. This is James' prescription for experiencing God's nature, God's essence. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. There's a fun one, huh? Your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. For those of you who are coming this week, you know, that sounds like a pretty daunting and kind of a strange list. I mean, submitting to God, that is something that we can probably get our minds around a little bit, but we really don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes, do we? I mean, this is really... First step of the 12-step stuff, admitting that you're powerless, realizing that everything that you can do by your own lights, out of that fear base, that need to acquire, that need to control, that need to dominate, that need to be spectacular, that need to be powerful, all of those impulses, all of those compulsions are coming out of this place of fear and they are the opposite of submission. If you could turn that off, if you could somehow just admit that all of that control and all the things that you run around trying to do are mere illusion in the first place, maybe you can finally lay them down. Maybe life has to beat the heck out of you first before you finally get there. But once you do and once you realize that we are desperately dependent as human beings, put that on your fridge, desperately dependent. You know, We just don't know what we don't know. We don't realize how dependent we are. It's masked from us. And so then we're also ignorantly arrogant, aren't we? (laughs) There's another one for you. We just don't know. And so out of our ignorance comes this arrogance to think that we can somehow dominate, to think that we can somehow control. Can we turn that around? Can we let go? Start to let that stuff that we cling to fall, fall through our hands. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil is emblematic of everything that's fear-based. Whatever power the devil has over you, whether you understand that as an actual spiritual being or just your own, in, your own human failings, it's all fear-based. It's all that you don't have enough, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough. People are going to abandon you, people are going to let you down. All of that is the fodder, the tools of the devil. Resist that. Turn that around. Start to understand. We already have. To understand it first, the next is to choose to act as if hey, I really can let go of this stuff because there's more coming. There's a constant flow from the Spirit. That's resisting the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Sounds conditional. God's going to hang back and just let you flounder until you finally draw. No, of course not. God is within. God is without. God is everywhere. God is nearer than our next heartbeat, our next breath. But until we open up, until we clear a space, until we quiet our minds, we'll never know how close God really is. Cleanse your hands. Stop doing the things that take you into separation. Just don't do it. Repent. Change directions. Stop doing the things that you know create the dysfunction in your life. But realize that it's not just enough to follow rules. The purify your heart part is coming from the inside out. So we're going to act our way into right living, right? 
act our way into right thinking, act our way into a place where now we start to connect will to will, heart to heart, and then it flows out of us from the inside. Be miserable and mourn and weep. That's a difficult one for us until we put it back into Jesus' words where he says, blessed are those who mourn. To live a life in such a way that you never mourn for anything is to live a life completely and utterly apart from any kind of real connection, any kind of real love that when it is lost causes you that mourning. There is a motif throughout the New Testament and really throughout many of the world's traditions, that there is a descent that we need to go into. We need to lose everything. We need to strip away everything that we think we are and think we have, all that sense and illusion of power before we can ascend again. And this is what Jesus is talking about. You're blessed when you mourn. You're blessed when you feel stripped of everything because that's the point of change. That's the place where we can really do it. At the precipice we change, when we are run out of everything that we are and everything that we think we have, that's the place that we can actually change. It becomes possible. This is what he's talking about here. And of course, humble yourselves. See yourselves not any worse, but not any better than anyone else, completely connected. All of these things are about this, this Julian of Norwich called it oneing. That's O-N-E-I-N-G, oneing. There's a quote from her, and if I can read it, because my eyes are getting so bad. She reads, reads The love of God creates in us such a oneing that when totally seen, no person can separate themselves from another person. The love of God creates such a oneing, such a connection, such a realization that everything really is one. Everything really is connected. Remember the movie Avatar? You know? planet-wide network of plant roots and things that held everything together. I don't think that's really that far from the truth, spiritually speaking. There is this spiritual net that connects us to everyone else and to everything else. And when we finally let go of all this stuff, you can start to see it, not visibly, but you feel the realness of it, the reality of all that connection. And once you have experienced that oneing, it's so hard to see life disconnected again. This is what James is talking about. All of these things, every one of these in this prescription, this laundry list of things that we can do are designed to bring us at one with God, which will bring us at one with each other. That's why he's so hard on behavior that judges and separates and and creates a caste system between rich and poor and this and that and all the other. We need to act as if we are one, act as if we're connected, and then we will be. So if we can finally let go of that sense of pride understood as the need to be above and over and out and head and shoulders just to be seen, just to be significant, if we can let go of that and realize we're not significant to God because we're different, we're significant to God because we're all the same. In his eyes, we're all the same. We're loved the same. So to move against that need to acquire something and just let go, push off. Let's just fall into this embrace. Okay, James is going to give us another illustration here at verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. That's a hard phrase for us, judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge. 
the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So this idea of judging the law, that's a tough one. What does that even mean? How do we deal with this? Those of you who have been through more of the sessions here, you remember a few weeks back, he was talking about the law of liberty. Is that ringing any bells? Remember the law of liberty? We talked about what an oxymoron that is because law is understood as restriction and limitation. Here's this law of liberty. What the heck is that all about? Here's where we can start to get a little bit of a glimpse into the strife that was probably happening in the Jerusalem community when this letter was written. In the first few generations after the crucifixion, one of the, as, as this followers of the way of Jesus were moving from an, a completely Jewish base into a Gentile base, the immediate fight that started to happen was whether followers of Jesus had to be Jews first before they could follow Jesus. And those who believed that, that any follower of Jesus had to be circumcised, had to be uh, following all the dietary codes, the purity rites, and all of the tenets uh, of Judaism were called Judaizers. So the Judaizers believed that, and then there were those like Paul. And if you remember reading Acts, Paul is incensed that the Judaizers are telling the Gentiles that they have to follow all this because he believed in a law of liberty, a law that didn't restrict and put more restrictions on people, but a law that opened up. In other words, a set of guidelines, I guess, a way of living life is a better way to, to describe it, that opened up this liberty. Paul is always dealing with this theme over and over again. What does it mean to be free in Christ, he's always asking. This law of liberty is, is incredibly important to understand because if we're just going to follow the old rights, R-I-T-E-S, if we're only going to follow the old program, then we're always going to be conforming, trying to do this from the outside in, and we'll never get to open up. We'll never be really free. Our hearts will never really be connected. You know, you can't, follow rules into kingdom or into heaven. We've said that many times. And so he's trying to get this across, I think, here to them. This was probably something that was happening in their community. There were those that said, yes, you have to follow the dietary laws and the purity codes and men had to be circumcised and all these issues. And he's saying, when you do that, you're judging your brother against a standard and a way that you have interpreted this thing. But it's your personal interpretation that you are now putting on somebody else and judging them. And as soon as you do that, you create this us and them situation. They are now less than us because they aren't doing what we're doing. They are not acceptable to us because they are not doing what we are doing. And as soon as you do this, you have completely violated the law of liberty. The law of liberty is that everyone is equal at the table. Everyone is accepted. Everyone is welcome. And as soon as you judge this, you're judging that law of liberty, not the Torah, not necessarily the Judaic law, but you're violating this law. And I think this is what he's trying to get across to us. This is why judging is so detrimental. This is why Jesus makes such a big deal of it in Matthew 6 and why James is making such a big deal of it right now. To judge against this personal standard is to separate and take away any sense of brotherhood, any sense of sisterhood. And we all do it. We're all going by this standard in our head, which is violating this law, just as the Pharisees did with the Sabbath laws. They had so many rules around the Sabbath that no longer was it a restful time that it was designed to be. People were more 
anxious and neurotic on the Sabbath trying to figure out what they could and couldn't do than the rest of the week. And Jesus is saying, hey, turn that thing around. What was the intent of the rule in the first place? Let's follow the intent. And we do this in all sorts of ways, culturally and in, in other ways. I mean, I've told this story before, but there was a, an elderly lady in the, the first church that I pastored at, and as she was leaving one Sunday, she shot a look across her shoulder at me and said, there will be no electric guitars in heaven, I can tell you that. I got judged. I felt bad. Even though I wasn't playing the electric guitar. <laughs> but the point is, she had a way of interpreting this way of following Jesus. And she was judging others by that. And because of that, she was angry, she was resentful, and she separated herself from me. This is what James is talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. As soon as we create those standards, as soon as we judge in this way, we are losing the connection with each other. And he says this interesting thing, that, and he's echoing Jesus again. There's only one judge. There's only one lawgiver. Remember when the rich young man comes to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. And that is our Father in heaven. Because as soon as we make distinctions between good and bad, we're doing the same thing. We're judging. Jesus is trying to break that way of thinking right then and there. There's only one who is good. And that goodness is complete. It's unconditional. It's infinite. It has no degree and it has no standard. Because as soon as you put a standard on it, you have limited it. You have restricted it. And now all it does is separate one from another. That's why there's only one who is good. Follow that as best you can. And you can't follow it perfectly because we're finite people, right? But this is what they're trying to drive us toward. There's a second illustration he gives right here at verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it's sin. So here we're back to that illusion of control, that illusion of continuity, that we think our lives are about. And the truth is that neither exists. This illusion of control, it's not there. Now, it's almost impossible for us to give up power if we think we have it. But once we realize it's illusion, we can give up the illusion. And so part of this is getting to that step one mentality where we admit that we are powerless. We finally get to that place where everything that we do and everywhere we push is just not getting us where we want to go. And then we have the ability to start letting go to start finding that place of desperate dependence. You know, you think about it, it's like two toddlers playing. You ever watch two kids playing? You know, they think they got it all together. They think they're really cool. When they've graduated from just their room, now they can roam the entire house. And then they can roam the backyard. Man, that's great. And you're just looking at them, you know, this is 6,000 square feet. That's your whole world is 6,000 square feet, Right. Or maybe the big man on campus in high school, yeah, they rule the whole roost there, right? 
we look back after 40 years and it's just high school. There's Hitler trying to dominate the entire world. He's got the whole world, right? That was his goal. That was his plan. Okay, so you're king of a mud ball spinning in space. What have you really got? Try to get the perspective here. Remember those scenes in Men in Black where whole galaxies were just in marbles and whole worlds had been inside a locker, you know? Size doesn't matter. What are we talking about here? What do we think we really have? When Jesus tells us that you can't turn one hair white or black, what kind of control do you really think you have over things? This is that ignorant arrogance that we have built ourselves into. It comes from fear. Out of fear, we're desperately trying to control whatever we can just so we can feel okay enough to be able to take another few steps forward. Jesus and James are trying to cut that off, cut that whole way of thinking off and divert us over into ways of love where such things don't even enter into the computation. We already have everything. Everybody already has everything. What are we trying to do in terms of shelving things up or down? It doesn't even make any sense. What are we boasting about? This evil here, this idea of unripeness in Aramaic, immature, uncomprehending, it keeps us separated from the truth of God's wanting and the freedom that that wanting feels like. To be ignorant, to be fearful is one thing. To know what you're supposed to do and not to do it, that's what James categorizes as sinful. Willfully going in a different direction. Willfully hurting people. Again, out of fear. But there, I suppose there are levels of this. He brought in images of the rich before the rich who were boastful, the rich who were arrogant and domineering. And we're starting to layer up images here so we can really understand what he's talking about. He continues on. At first, at, now we've moved to uh, chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under any judgment. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Don't swear. Now, again, this is cultural to a certain degree. You ever say gosh or golly or geez? Oh, geez. You know, how about uh, for crying out loud? If you think about it, all those sayings, where do they come from? Well, they're all euphemisms to avoid saying the name of God. Gosh or golly. And you're starting to say, oh, God. And you say, oh, gosh. You know, somebody finally just change the ending of the word, and then it's stuck. You know, gosh or golly, gosh darn, when we know what that stands for, right? Heck instead of hell, and um, by crikey, (laughs) Jiminy Crickets, instead of saying Jesus Christ, or by Christ, or or for crying out loud. That's my favorite. I love that one. For crying out loud, instead of saying for Christ's sake, I suppose. But we have all these euphemisms to try to avoid saying the name of God. The Jews did exactly the same thing. And in fact, in their culture, it was much more pronounced because they were not allowed to speak the name of their God to the extent that today, and even in Jesus' time, no one was sure how it was pronounced anymore. There's so many generations that passed without pronouncing it, they didn't know where the vowel points went. And so it could be Yahweh, it could be Jehovah, nobody really knows anymore. And what they would do is substitute different types of words for God's name, especially when they were making oaths. So instead of saying God's name, they would say, for instance, Adonai, which is Lord, or Hashem, which means the name, or Shemaiah, which means heaven, because that was the place of God. And then they would swear by those alternate words. And then they would swear by Jerusalem, the holy city. They would swear by the temple. They would swear by the altar. 
They would swear by the horns of the altar, by the gold on the horns of the altar, by their head, you know. So by the earth, they would swear, I by all these things. And then they started making hierarchies of how much this oath really counted. Like if you swore by the gold on the horns of the altar, that was a really good oath and it was binding. But if you just swore on the altar, well, then not so much. It was kind of like crossing your fingers behind your back where you could get around some of these oaths and some of these promises that you made. And so Jesus is coming against that and he says, look, forget all that stuff. It doesn't matter. If you're going to make a promise, make a promise. Just say yes and let it be yes. Or say no and let it be no. And don't go into all of this subterfuge and don't go into all these levels which continue to break down and separate us, going in the opposite direction from this oneing that we're really talking about here. This is what it's all about. This is what he's trying to get us to understand. And now he circles back to prayer. He's giving us all of these prescriptions and he's really covering a lot of the bases here. Then he circles back to prayer at verse 13, right after this one. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And I'm sure you've heard that one. It's a very famous line. Now, James is really covering all the bases here. Are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Are you sick? So kind of from positive to negative and everywhere in between, what's the prescription? The prescription is to pray. Always to pray. Whether you're suffering or whether you're cheerful, pray. Prayers of petition, prayers of thanksgiving, it's still prayer. Is anyone sick? Then have corporate prayer. Have people pray over. So there's this always this coming back to prayer. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the impetus is, the solution is always to pray, always to connect. See what he's trying to do here? See what he's trying to get us? But now here's the catch. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. What the heck does that mean? It's sort of like a truism, isn't it? I mean, if the prayer is effective, then of course it accomplishes something. Well, effective is really um, not a very good translation of the word there. It's an unfortunate translation. The word in the Greek is energeo, which is the word that we get energetic from or energy from. And really what it can mean is energetic, but it can also mean insistent. It can mean continual. It can mean fervent. That starts to get us in a better direction. You know, the insistent, the continuous, the fervent prayer of a righteous man, one who is living well with God, that accomplishes much. See where he's going with this? Let's read that same line from the message. Are you familiar with the message? Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. The way he says it is, the prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. I like that. He's good. He gets, he gets the idea across so often. In other words, getting right back to what we've been talking about here, the quality of our prayer, no, when the quality of the means, that is our prayer, matches the quality of the ends, which is God, that reveals truth. That gets us someplace. Once again, 
The quality of the means we use must match the ends that we seek. The quality of the prayer as means must match the essence, the Shem of God, if we're going to get anywhere we really want to go. If there's any hope of this prayer being answered, quote-unquote, in the oneing, in the connection, in the felt unity, revealing the connection of everything, then the quality of the prayer has to match the quality of God's essence. The quality of our prayer reveals our belief in the quality of God's will. All right, what did I just say there? The way we pray reveals what we already believe about God's will for us. So if our prayer is public and grandiose, like the Pharisees were, all right, then God's will for us is our own advancement. That's the way we see it. We, we think God's will for us is to advance among people to be head and shoulders above them, to be their teachers, to be their superiors, to be their leaders. That's what we really believe about ourselves. And so our prayers match that. See? If our prayers have many words, you know, if our prayers are wordy, if they're always trying to extract some kind of revelation from God, then our idea of God's will is clarity, understanding. We want to get a theological understanding that we believe will then give us control. If our prayers tend to always be petitions, always asking for things, always changing our circumstances because we don't like them, because they're painful to us, then our idea of God's will is a material blessing. Our prayers reveal. Look at your own prayers. What shape do your prayers take? It will reveal to you what you believe about God's will for your life. It will reveal to you your fear. It will reveal to you what it is that you're trying to get in order to be able to take that next breath, those next steps. But when you really come down to it, what is God's will? Is God's will any of those things? Is God's will tied to what we do? And I know we've said this in here so many times, but it bears repeating. I truly believe that where Jesus and James are taking us is to understand that God's will is not a what. It's a how. It's not what we do. It's not what we accomplish. It's not what we build. It's how we live our lives every moment. Not about circumstances. Not about changing circumstances. It's literally about a state of being. A state of being at one with. This oneing, this idea of unity. Now if that's true, if that's really what God's will is, it's the how of living anything that you do choose to do with that sense of oneness and connection, with that sense that everything is somehow connected and that we're part of that whole thing, that everything is already here, then what is the purpose of prayer? What is prayer supposed to do for us? See, I think that prayer is the interface between our will and God's will. You know what an interface is, right? It's the point where two systems connect. You and your computer. How do you talk to your computer? Well, if you don't know computer language where you can type the computer's language directly in, then you have an interface. It's a graphic interface where you can point and click and drag and move things around. That is the interface. That's what allows you to be able to talk with the computer and the computer to talk back to you. I believe prayer is the interface between our will and God's will. That's how we get to be connected and that is the purpose. Not just that it is, it is the interface, 
But the purpose is to make our wills one. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Two things that say exactly the same thing. Until our will has submitted, become one with, we've stripped away all the things that fear has covered over in the way we look at things, in the way we choose, how in the world can we one with God and one with God's will and see the connectedness of all things? This is really where we're coming. And answered prayer has to be prayed with that same quality as the ends of God. And that's how this works, this connection between wills. Jesus spends all night in the Garden of Gethsemane until he can finally say, just before dawn, going to the cross, you know, not my will, but yours be done. Because all before that, he was afraid. He knew what was coming. He didn't want to do it. If there's any way that this can be changed, let this cup pass from me. But staying with the interface, moving through, he finally reconnected with God's will. The two became one. Jesus didn't lose who he was, but he became one with. He said, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it, right? Lose it how? Not that you become obliterated, but that you become one with. You're, you're subsumed into, you're connected with. This is really what he's trying to get us to understand. And so what... <laughs> desperately trying to turn that thing off. What James is doing is coming full circle here. At the very beginning, remember what the first line of his book was? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations. Because these are the things that produce the endurance that will produce the perfect result. What he was talking about there was an acceptance of the difficulties of life. If you can accept life's difficulties, if you can accept the way life is, now you can come full circle that he is basically bringing us to here at the end of chapter 5 with acceptance of our relationship with life itself and the God in the life. We start by accepting the difficulties. We start with the specific and then we move to the general. With the acceptance of life difficulties, life is difficult. I accept that. I make friends with it. I start to see how that grows me up. That produces the endurance, which is the the action of faith that brings us into the acceptance of life as it really is, my relationship to God, how this dynamic thing works between me and God. James went on this journey himself. He had to have gone on this journey. Following Jesus, his brother, he went on this journey from acceptance to acceptance, and then he wrote about it. He's telling us about it. He's trying to invite us to go on the journey ourselves because that's the only way this works. If we don't go on the journey ourselves, we will never know what any of this means. It's like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz coming full circle and coming back to her home in Kansas and realizing that everything she needed was already in her own backyard. She only had to take the journey to find out she didn't have to take the journey. Or like T.S. Eliot in the famous end of his four quartets where he says, at the end of all our exploring, we will arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. These themes keep coming back because they are truth. And poets find them, you know, and religious leaders find them too. But it's the same truth, this idea where we move through this. It's about acceptance. I wanted to read a couple of passages from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Acceptance was the answer is the name of the chapter, and some of you know it very well. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hearing Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. 
Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life, unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Unless I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept my life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. Shakespeare said, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. He forgot to mention that I was the chief critic. (laughs) I was always able to see the flaw in every person, every situation, and I was always glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection, just as I did. AA and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. And James would say, you're judging the law of liberty, wouldn't he? Supplanting God by supplanting the oneing, the connection of everything, the acceptance of things as it really is. You know what the opposite of judging is? Acceptance, exactly. Acceptance is the gateway to the experience of God and who God really is. Why? Because acceptance remedies the pride. All the defense mechanisms, all those mechanisms based in fear that keep us separate from each other. That's really it. Have you ever thought about what the difference is between pain and suffering? Maybe between hearing and listening? Maybe between happiness and joy? You know, pain is physical. Can't help it. Just like I've heard people say, I can't help hearing, but I don't always listen. Same idea. You know, hearing is physical. Listening is something deeper. Suffering is emotional. It's, it's spiritual. It's psychological. It's all those things. And the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is situational. It comes from the outside in. Something changes, it makes us happy. You win the lottery, you're happy. Joy is something that comes from the inside out. Listening comes from the inside out. Suffering comes from the inside out. The rest come from the outside in. The difference between the two is a choice that we make to accept things as they are. We can be joyful in any circumstance if we accept the circumstance as being what it is right here and right now. This is the way life works. There's a great story by Viktor Frankl, who was one of the pioneers of psychology in the early part of the last century. Kind of weird for me to say early part of the last century. That's still my century, but it's the last century now, early 1900s. He talks about a man coming in uh, to his uh, psychology practice in Vienna, elderly man. He had just lost his wife two years ago, and he just couldn't get over the grief. He couldn't move through it. He couldn't function, and it was getting worse. And so um, the doctor listens to him as he's telling his story, and finally he stops him and says, what would it have been like if you died first and your wife survived you? And he says, oh, it would have been terrible. She never could have adjusted. It would have been so horrible. So he says, so in a sense, your surviving her spared her the pain and the trauma of having to survive you. And he stopped and he thought about it for a minute. 
stood up, picked up his hat and coat and left and never came back. Not good for the psychology business, but it illustrates a point. If we can find the meaning and the purpose in the pain, then it no longer is suffering. It's the choice to accept things as they are. And the things that drive us, the things that motivate us out of fear, are the compulsions and the addictions that we all have. Freud said that we were motivated by the will to pleasure. Adler said we were motivated by the will to power. It was Frankel who said we were motivated by the will to meaning. But whatever that is, if you're trying to search for that thing, to find it outside of yourself and bring it in so that you can be whole and complete, you are working at odds with everything that the good news is about, everything that Jesus is about, because it doesn't work that way. Our compulsions and our addictions, the way we strive, are never going to match the ends that we seek if we're seeking God. James' way, Jesus' way, is really the negation of all these human drives. It's the acceptance of our own vulnerability. It's the acceptance of our own dependence. It's inverting those basic human drives that are all based out of fear And that meaning and purpose can only be found in losing ourselves, which means stripping away all the things that we cling to so desperately in our search for what we will never have until we finally stop striving. Twang Su, ancient Chinese philosopher, said, you will never have happiness until you do nothing whatsoever calculated to achieve it. It's just the opposite, see? There can't be any other way There's no other way to do this. If kingdom really is within, if we can take Jesus at his word that the kingdom is within us, if heaven really is the beginning of our journey and not the end of our journey, then instead of us striving to acquire, we need to push off, let go, free fall into God's embrace, into the center of these things. It feels so different than everything that you have probably experienced to date. And if it feels familiar, you're probably not doing it right. It should feel different, at least at the beginning. Think of it. Free fall is weightlessness. Any of you who ever skydove before, you know what it feels like. And what does it feel like? It feels completely free. Complete freedom. Until you hit the ground, of course. This idea of free fall, this idea of pushing off, feels like freedom from gravity, feels like freedom from everything else. And here's the catch. Here's the thing that you need to consider. You're already falling. We think that we have a choice to fall or not. But the truth is, from the moment that you were pushed out of your mom's fuselage at birth, you've been free-falling ever since. You are falling now. You can't help but free-fall. You're in free-fall. The only choice you have is the quality of your fall. Are you going to fall in abject fear of the ground coming up to you? Or are you going to fall knowing that you've got your bright orange canopy over your head and you can just flare into a perfect step into whatever happens at the moment of death. Our only choice is how do we fall? That choice can only be made when we accept the terms of the ride. (laughs) Accept it. Let it go. And then we can start to enjoy the ride. Let's pray. Father, this is one heck of a ride that you've got us on. Thank you for making it so interesting. Thank you for making it so beautiful and exciting. 
And even thank you for making it hurt so much when it does. We need everything that life has to offer to know what it really is all about. Help us to accept every moment as it presents to us. Help us to accept what we consider good and bad and see that those are just terms that we choose to label and we can just unchoose them and we can just find connection with you in every moment. You are the Lord of all this creation. We want to participate in it fully. We want to lose ourselves in it fully. We want to find ourselves falling with each other and enjoying the ride. You've given us everything. We know that in our heads. Help us to get it into our hearts where we can really use it, Father. Help us to take the steps we need to take as if these things are true so we can find out that they are in you, always in you. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Remind us each day we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.